As the sun set on my island prison, I rolled the giant wheelbarrow full of turnips up the hill for the last time. My animal overlord smiled his sardonic, cartoonish smile as he deposited my hard work into the bottomless maw and returned to me my bell reward. Their jingling rang so hollow, even though they were the last bells I would ever need. So I'm free? Finally free? The days of my labor beginning to clear. You were always free, replied the raccoon. Free to embrace the void. Hello, good evening, and remain indoors. Have you tried kill all the poor? You are not a Buddhist. You are in a cult. Suck it, Nietzsche. The wave returns to the ocean. Where it came from. And where it's supposed to be. Not bad, Buddhists. Warning. This podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like their people. Welcome, friends, to episode 145 of Embrace the Void, where being locked inside doesn't mean you can't work for the furry man. I am your host, Aaron, um, as always, and, you know, here we are in some particularly voidy times. Um, I'm still working on maybe the correct way to cover the current situation on the show, uh, but in the meantime, I, I do have a discussion with a fellow lover of pop culture as a way of doing philosophy and coping with reality so hopefully that will be helpful so um let's get crossing all life ends in death which we as a species are cursed with knowing resulting in something my guest this week is james croft host of the ethics and chill podcast where he does a wide range of pop culture philosophy uh and leader of the ethical society of st louis james would you like to say hi to the void hey void how's it going <laughs> uh welcome i'm i'm really happy to have you here we recently crossed paths um because uh ryan bell put out a request for people to discuss transhumanism um and you and i both took the bait and we ended up having a really lovely chat with a secular student group who had a, a member who was particularly interested in transhumanism um and that was a lot of fun and i was very impressed by your critiques of um certain versions of trans humanism in particular and i thought it was a really fun conversation so i'm really glad to have you here on the show um if we want to get us started do you want to give us a sense maybe a little bit of your sort of background both personal identity and and political identity a little bit where do you sit in the great compass of life yeah sure so i'm from london england where I was born and grew up, but I live in St. Louis, Missouri now after a fairly long stopover in Boston, where I did graduate work at Harvard in human development mainly. Mm-hmm. Um, I I guess since we're going to be talking about the Ethical Society a little bit, I'll give you a rundown of my sort of religious and philosophical background, which is I grew up in a non-religious home, and I've never been traditionally religious, but I've always been interested in the big questions of life and 
my high school had a Christian foundation. It's one of those very old English schools that has a link historically to the Christian church. So we had a chapel on campus and a, a chapel choir, which I sang in. So I would go to the Sunday services and sing in them and find the sermons very interesting and the just the space very intriguing. I thought it was interesting to have a time set aside each week to explore the big philosophical, ethical, existential questions of life. But I thought all the mm-hmm. answers they were offering were bullshit. Like I never believed in any of them. Mm-hmm. But I kind of had a sense that what they were trying to do was important, even if they weren't doing it very well, in my in my view anyway. And so mm-hmm. um, I've had a kind of early interest in philosophy and questions of meaning and purpose and why are we here and all those big questions that philosophers like to talk about. And that blossomed into eventually doing a doctoral dissertation in in a philosophical subject. And now the work that I do today, which is I'm effectively a humanist clergy person. I lead a congregation for humanists. Yeah. So I'm really interested to talk about that. I'm curious in, in that, in, do you have specific memories of you calling bullshit on a particular like uh, explanation for things? Were there Were there any like real red flags that went up for you philosophically that caused you to to move in that direction? Yeah, I don't think it was so much big philosophical things. I never had that conversion experience, which so many people have of where they Mm -hmm. realized, oh, this doesn't make any sense because I didn't believe in God or any of that to begin with. But I -hmm. do remember it was more of an ethical thing. Like they were offering Mm -hmm. responses to the problems of life that I just felt would not serve people. Like even as a teenager, I was like, this is not helpful. I remember one where a monk in a grey robe, he was kind of thin and had this beard and he was quite charismatic and energetic and he was giving the sermon and he it was all about covetousness. And at one point mm, he came mm-hmm. up to the front row of of the kids in the choir and he he pulled the shoe off one of the the boy's feet and he hugged this shoe to his chest and he was sort of rocking there holding this kid's shoe saying how bad it was to be obsessed with personal possessions and i was like you know there is a point here in the sense that you can be too greedy or you know too mm-hmm. too concerned with physical things or with material wealth but shoes is not that like wearing shoes is is not the point at which you've gone beyond a reasonable concern for the sort of things right. that you earn so i kind of that sticks in my mind from what i understand it's at, at the point of having a fr- refrigerator is when you've become too covetous right yeah but, probably he probably uh, lived in a place with yeah. like a, a, an ice box or something like that yes um so so yes, yeah, so you then are, as I understand it, a atheist clergyman. Is that the correct nomenclature, or how would you how would you characterize your yeah. position and what are the what are the activities involved? That's that's pretty pretty accurate. That will give people a reasonable sense of what I do day to day. I would say more accurately, mm-hmm. humanist, simply because uh, I am an mm-hmm. atheist, but are congregation is based around promoting humanist values and helping people live them out in their lives. We don't talk about the existence of God hardly ever. We don't talk about other religions and what they believe. We just kind of address our attention to the challenges of the life that we're living right now. Um, Mm -hmm. And so, so what I do is 
everything that a regular clergy person for like a Christian church would do, but no prayer, no reference to scripture. So we do pastoral care and counseling and we lead services on Sunday. We don't call them services, but that's the word that most people understand and have all sorts of community mm-hmm. programs like educational programming and activism, etc., all focused towards teaching people about humanism and helping them live in a more humanistic way. Do you worry at all about humanism as a term being too human centric and that is as like it focuses a little bit too much ethically on the promotion of human well-being at the cost of potentially other entities? This is just a, a, pre- a debate that's come up in previous episodes about people sort of staking out different nomenclature. Yes, I, I know, for instance, that Peter Singer likes personism a bit more than he likes humanism for the partly that exact reason. Yeah, I think Mm -hmm. I I would say I have a moderate amount of worry about that. My understanding of the humanist tradition of thought is that it's actually pretty much from the outset recognised that it's not just about human beings, but that the sort of arguments we would use to justify the moral worth of human beings can be extended very easily to non-human beings, including other animals. And many of the early animal rights activists were themselves humanists mm-hmm. so i don't mm-hmm. i don't feel like there's a contradiction it's just that the word suggests a sort of species level chauvinism and it does turn up sometimes uh so yeah it mm-hmm. sometimes happens but i don't think it's as big a problem as some people think yeah i tend to agree i think that from the beginning it has been a positive movement in that kind of expanding of the moral community kind of way um it's just that the i i do worry sometimes about the the terminology um but let's so i'm curious to lo- i want to learn a little bit more here about the ethical society are y'all tax exempt for starters yes we're we're a congregation a religious congregation and that was so the first ethical society was founded just over 140 years ago in New York. And Mm -hmm. the founder was the son of a prominent New York rabbi who had initially intended to take over from his father, but then studied a bunch of Neo-Kantian thinkers at university in Germany, (laughs) came to the conclusion that God doesn't exist. I know it's a problem when you study those people. And um, philosophy leads to questions. Exactly, exactly. And he did question, and he basically he couldn't believe anymore in the in the traditional understanding of Judaism. So he proposed this kind of universal congregation where anyone could come, which didn't teach belief in God, and which was not recognizably Jewish in any ethnic sense. Hmm. And his mm-hmm. father's Jewish congregation was not up for that in the main but some of them were excited by it and gave him money to start this new thing which became the first ethical society but he very much thought of it as a religion um because that was the terminology in use at the time like it was even more difficult to be non-religious in the late 1800s which is when he was starting this than it is today so it it just Mm -hmm. wasn't really an option on the table to call it a non-religious congregation so he just saw it as an evolution of religion and we've been recognized as a religion by the supreme court actually it did go to the supreme court in one case um for many years uh-huh. I, I ask partly because um as a you know, an up and coming cult leader, I 
Um, I, it seems like there isn't a lot of difference in the activities that I engage in and the activities that you seem to be describing for your particular job. And I just wonder more and more, am I missing out on, should I be engaging in tax-exempt status for our particular little uh, community? Um, if, we, if we as a society are going to have this crazy system whereby some communities are deemed special enough to have that status, is it not reasonable for any community to seek that status if uh, they are in any way providing these kinds of, of basic services of well-being towards others? Yes, I agree. I think that we should expand the sorts of tax exemptions that religious organizations get to include self-styled secular organizations. So I, I totally agree. Mm-hmm. I, I'm, I tend to be a little bit more skeptical of the general atheist approach would just say tax the churches because that would totally screw mm-hmm. us over as well but also i have a kind of philosophical mm-hmm. objection which we, we could go into but i tend to think that the opposite is a better solution to that problem which is no expand those exemptions to other community facing organizations exactly as you say hmm. great i think i'm totally on board here this sounds like a lot of fun um do y'all need a branch of the ethical society opened up um maybe somewhere in middle jersey i could um I could lead a new congregation for you or something, perhaps? Are y'all expanding? Oh, yeah. We're always looking for people to open new ethical societies. I warn you, it's very difficult work, but, you know, if you want to do it... I know, and I've got a PhD program i got to do first, but it's, you know, keep it in mind. I really... Yeah, I am. It is tempting, but I think for the moment, my, my culting activities will have to remain somewhat <laughs> recreational. Um, so... So, so this does this leads directly then into ethics and chill, right? Your podcast is is uh, supported by the Ethical Society. Yeah, we uh, when I started working at the Ethical Society of St. Louis six years ago now, one of my hopes was to bring slightly different audiences to it than had been coming traditionally. One challenge of any community is that it tends to, if it's successful, be successful with a particular subset of people and then the programming Mm -hmm. tends to shift so that it favors those sorts of people and then you just get more of those sorts Mm -hmm. of people which is fine but you know we're supposed to be a community for everyone i wanted to bring more young people in i wanted to engage a broader community and so one of the things we came up with were regular public lectures exploring major pop culture artifacts and examining what they have to teach us about how to live. So the first one we did was on the ethics of Star Trek when Discovery, Mm -hmm. the first season, was coming to a close. Um, Mm -hmm. And then we did one about Star Wars and the hero's journey. And we just kind of try and find ways to link the pop culture conversation to a deeper philosophical conversation Um, which takes these pop culture things seriously as the kind of modern Mm -hmm. mythology of our times. And it's, it was a very successful series of live events. So we decided to spin it into a podcast. That's great. I mean, I'm given obviously with philosophers in space, I'm fully on board with this model of teaching philosophy by, you know, making it accessible through media where you don't sort of, talk down to the media, but rather recognize the value of the media as conveying difficult ideas in enjoyable, engaging kinds of ways. So I'm a big fan are of there Philosophers pre- in Space too. Oh big thanks. Fan. It's you know as as as, as, as for as far as recreational activities go, it is a fulfilling one. Um so 
what kinds of genres in particular or um, media types or mediums in particular do you feel like you were personally attached to? Like, what, what are your wheelhouses that you feel like you bring to the table of this pop culture discussion? I am a huge science fiction, fantasy and video game nerd. I am your typical geek. That, and nice. I grew up in a Star Trek loving household. My mom mm-hmm. in particular was a huge, is a huge Star Trek fan, and she raised all her kids to have that passion. I remember watching The Next Generation with her <laughs> on TV and then Deep Space Nine and Voyager and all of them. We even tried Enterprise. Um, Can we, I just want to talk about this for a second, actually. I had a friend growing up who also was from a Star Trek household, and I was not from a Star Trek household. And it always struck me to, that, like, the Star Trek household was a cut above in nerdery <laughs> from the Star Wars household. Like, every household was a Star Wars household. But, like, the Star Trek households who had, you know, the entire seasons on VHS next to their television and had, like, the models of the ships and stuff, like, before Legos made it easy for everyone to build models like there was there was a real effort i feel like that went into being committed to the trek lifestyle over the star wars lifestyle do you agree with that i won't i can't make the comparison to the star wars people (laughs) because because i Uh i don't want to uh, have threats against my life made on twitter after this but fair enough fair enough you did luckily they can't force choke at a distance you'll be fine (laughs) isn't the whole point of force choke that it's at a i guess it's a short distance to be fair um so uh, i did you basically described the house i grew up in with uncanny precision like we did have Uh whole bookcases of vhs tapes all in order mm-hmm. of every episode of the original series, Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, and Voyager, every single one. Huge, huge, just feet of space taken up with these videos, and then the models and the uniforms and the figures. This was a, for me as a kid, Star Trek was a really big part of my life. I mean, I went to conventions. I dressed in uniforms. I did not have many friends. You know, the whole deal. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. Were there particular things within it that you were attached to? Individuals, arcs, uh, episodes? What what was your, the the stuff that really did it for you? Well, I'm definitely a next-gen person, although I I appreciate all of Mm -hmm. them. Uh, I don't think, uh, with the possible (laughs) exception of Enterprise, I don't think any of those first four series including out five including the animated series which is great um are bad i I actually Hmm. think they they have tons of bad episodes but i think there's a huge amount of value in all of them i but i've always been uh, someone who really thinks that jean-luc picard is a model of humanist values in pop culture and i think that Mm -hmm. a lot of how i look at life has been influenced by the general ethos of that show is i I sound like such a sad person but it's true (laughs) oh no (laughs) you sound like a voidy individual just like the rest of us um no i think that's exactly like what the whole point of star trek is supposed to be is this you know sometimes cheesy sometimes um 
doesn't quite get all of the answers correct, but is striving to realize a better universe uh, by spreading essentially humanist values um, and sort of trying to find moderation where there are extremes of other kinds of cultural values, right, it seems like. Right, I think it's exactly right. And people sometimes don't realize that it it is an explicitly humanist vehicle. Roddenberry mm-hmm. was a humanist. Sure. He received awards from the American Humanist Association for his work. He talked openly about how he was using the fictional world of Star Trek to try and convey his own humanist values. He was writing parables. And I mm-hmm. think that one of the reasons why it has been, I think, the most successful humanist cultural product in history is because we are wired to respond to story. He put philosophical messages in the form of stories just like the Bible or the Quran or other scriptural texts do. And and mm-hmm. that was that's turned out to be a very effective way to convey values. I mean, at one point, Star Trek was the most successful television franchise in all history, which is not mm-hmm. how we usually think about Star Trek because it's got this kind of cheesy... Kind of people think of it as not particularly great, I think, often, but that is not mm-hmm. borne out by how massively successful it has been as a cultural product. It's been astonishingly, astonishingly successful. Yeah, I kind of think of like Galaxy Quest as like being the turning point in which our cultural sort of narrative views this as you know, something that used to be sort of in the closet and is now very much out of the cultural closet and part of the mainstream and acknowledged to be sort of something that has driven a lot of, um, you know, modern innovation because of the way that it inspired people to think about these big ideas and and innovation and, and technology in these kinds of ways. I think that's a good a good turning point identified. I do think Galaxy mm-hmm. Quest is a very affectionate send-up of Star Trek. Mm-hmm. It's obvious that the people who made that show actually like Star Trek, which is why I like Galaxy Quest, right? It's a, it's. Right. I see, you know, and the kid in Galaxy Quest who's the nerd, that was me mm-hmm. as a child. Justin I, Long, I think, actually played yes, that. Yes, yes. Uh, and right. I, I used to even be that thin. Sadly, not any longer. But, um, <laughs> yeah, I, I do agree that... You know, Star Trek always had a reputation of being a bit corny, but also our cultural values changed around it and Star Trek didn't change quick enough to keep pace Mm. with the way that culture was changing. I feel like one of the reasons Next Gen is revered so much is because the moral vision it presented and the kind of idea of the future it presented fit the time Mm -hmm. in which people were living people needed that kind of vision at that time and i don't think any of the other series quite hit the same nexus of cultural moment and future vision Mm -hmm. if that makes sense yeah much the same way that like I think West Wing was the cultural icon it was because it took place during the Bush years. Precisely. And created that kind of space for that liberal vision amidst the darkness. Um, so, I, I think so of the West Wing would, as the most Star Trek-y post-Star Trek television, actually. I actually think that they're very sure. similar in terms of their structure and their ideas. And obviously, I, I love the West Wing. That was my late teenage year Star Trek. <laughs> yeah, and I have, you know, I have mixed feel i mean like i love 
both of them and also like want both of them to be substantially better. I've been in the midst of finishing watching the end of Voyager. I worked through Next Gen, DS9, and Voyager in the past couple of years as like, you know philosophers in space well because like again i didn't come from a trek household like i had no background in it so i wanted to be able to say you know i've watched all the star trek um and i can now say it and man there's a lot of miss in there there is a lot like the season seven of voyager is brutal and as much as i want to say you know um for whatever greatness Picard has, I would wish that there was more Janeway in the world in terms of the kinds of leaders we actually have. Yeah. Um, because I think that, like, she and, you know, to a lesser degree, Cisco presents a, a good updating of the what can feel a little bit like, you know, um, gentleman colonialism yes. of the kind of Picard era. Um but like, but their shows both kind of wallow, like, like, like get bogged down in some really prob- you know, like weak writing. Um, I think Voyager much more than DS Nine, um, and so unfortunately, it feels like some of those advances that could have happened within those shows didn't carry forward in the culture and in the series as much. Yes, I entirely agree with you on those things. So, okay, so you're clearly, you know, bona fides on on the Trek side of things. What other stuff is really at the core of your um, nerd world? Uh, honestly, in for in a large part, it's very standard stuff. Like Lord of the Rings was a huge thing when the, I'd read them many times and then the movies came out and I was obsessed with the movies. Um, I've been a gamer all my life, although perhaps slightly unusually, I started with an Amiga 500, which my family bought when we were, I was six years old. And wow. so we were a PC household very early. My mum mm-hmm. was in IT. And so we, at mm-hmm. that time at least, and so we were kind of into things like the internet and stuff like that very early. I was setting up serial connections between computers in our home to play doom multiplayer over a serial uh-huh. connection so uh, wow. i didn't have a, a video games console until the nintendo 64 so i've always been a pc gamer which means heavy role-playing games um mm-hmm. in terms of interesting kind of games that explore moral or philosophical questions obviously the original bioshock is kind of a a totemic sure. piece of work in that area. Right. Planescape Torment is probably my favorite video game of all time because it's so fascinating, mm-hmm. morally speaking. And I still play games today. Like I'm obsessed with Animal Crossing right now. And we just did an episode on Animal Crossing <laughs> a couple of weeks ago. I know, and I want to talk about that when, and as part of our discussion of how to um, survive uh, pandemics via pop culture. Um, so, yeah, so I think that's great. I love gaming as well i've talked on the show i think before as well about my first online experience with gaming being playing doom 2 with somebody who is you know in a different house than i was currently in yes. at that moment in time which was a pretty wild experience um even though it, you know like was incredibly dysfunctional but it was still it was fun to be a part of that um so and yeah you mentioned your your recent discussion of animal crossing were there any other things um before we get into discussing the voidiness of this a little bit that uh, you've, you've discussed recently on your podcast that you feel like really exemplify what y'all are going for with the ethics and chill model. Asking like, what's your favorite podcast episode is kind of like asking what your favorite child is. It's, it's very difficult because I, I love all the guests. 
I think I know, one, I know. Yes, one that sticks out to me <laughs> is I had a great discussion about how science fiction explores personhood. And we looked at kind uh-huh. of how um, how shows like Ex Machina, uh, I guess it's a movie, mm-hmm. but how movies like Ex Machina mm-hmm. um, explore what it means to be a person and AI and how that's all going. And I, mm-hmm. I thought that that discussion was a really fascinating one um, because I learnt a lot of things that I hadn't known um, mm-hmm. and that I'd never even thought of. So I we discussed, for instance, how Roomba, uh, people cl- clean up before their Roomba because they feel bad huh. for their Roombas. So they clean their house <laughs> before turning on their Roomba. So uh, Maya, who's a friend of mine who um, I knew from Harvard who was studying there and then we talked together for a bit, she has now gone on to work with an organisation that does robotics work and she does sort of the sociological thinking about how it, it's affecting the patients who use their technology, et cetera, how people interact with the technology that they're creating. And uh-huh, so she had uh-huh. this wealth of insight into um, into how people relate to technology, particularly technology that's supposed to look and act like a human, and how mm-hmm. you people have started to do research into how people treat Siri, like how people speak to Siri and how it re- relates yeah. to how they treat other human beings. And it was just, I thought that was fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. Um, when I teach AI ethics, you know, it's fun to go off into the science fiction of well, we create sentient AI, but it's just as much fun for them when we talk about how right here in the moment, how how is the prevalence and the increasing prevalence of AI-like entities in our world changing us as human beings? And I think it's it's hard to deny that it isn't having an impact on our, our behavior, probably in ways that will be very difficult for us to disentangle and, and fully understand, um, but that like... You know, you know, you can see it even between the generations, how quickly the adaptation takes over and people, you know, become sort of normalized to it in some ways and develop different sort of norms and ethics in other ways. Right, right. Great. So, okay, I will I will stop torturing you by asking you about your own show. And um, let's talk about the void and culture a little bit. So when I was thinking about what we could chat about, I was sort of thinking as I was listening to your show about the different ways in which people, um, broadly speaking, cope with high stress situations like what, you know, a lot of us are experiencing right now in various degrees. Um, and that it seemed to me, and I, I'm curious to get your thoughts on this taxonomy and how you might tweak it, that these kind of broadly break down into the categories of, you know, things that feel cathartic because they are extremely voidy, dark pieces of art. Mm. And we like take pleasure in that darkness in, even in these terrible situations. And then at the same time, there's the opposite end of the spectrum, which is the kind of escapist, 
you know, we, we could debate which of these categories Animal Crossing falls into, <laughs> but I think a lot of people would put it in the escapist category. Um, you know, stuff to get away from the void. So do you feel like that, that, like, that split is a meaningful one? Do you see yourself, like, categorizing your own media into those things, depending on what you're in the mood for at a given time? Yeah, I think that's a good taxonomy. I I am a philosopher and I love taxonomies, so I'm I really appreciate <laughs> you kind of splitting things into buckets. And then those I love buckets. smashing them with a hammer. That's the fun. Yes, part. exactly. And then being like, yeah, this doesn't work for these reasons. This doesn't fit into anything. How does that? What does that do for your vaunted taxonomy? So, yep. yeah, I I quite I quite like that. I have certainly noticed a bifurcation of responses into you might think of it as the people who are now suddenly finding time to watch Parasite and the people Mm. who definitely don't want to watch Parasite right now or any of the other Uh movies about, you know, pandemics or illnesses or other things. I do have friends on Facebook who seem to have made it take some sort of perverse pleasure in finding every movie about a viral outbreak they can possibly watch and they're watching all of them. And I am not Mm -hmm. interested in that much of my every day is dealt with things like how can we reopen our building what would make it safe so i don't want to think about that so i'm more in the escapist category of spending way too much time recreating the entirety of the wizarding world of harry potter in animal crossing okay so you are in the like high level boutique animal crossing phase of your quarantine experience it's definitely boutique that is a good way of putting it well, yeah. So let's talk about the escapist side of things first a little bit, and then maybe we can get you to we can talk a little bit about the kinds of art for when you do feel the urge to lean into to something more voidy. Um, so, Animal Crossing, right? <laughs> I myself do not play Animal Crossing. I play Stardew Valley, and as we, I think you you hopefully know, right? There's a clear distinction between those things in terms of what is expected of you in those in those different games. Uh, there was a uh, an article that came out recently or it was was either like an article or just like a tweet joke that was like um you know animal crossing is a game for children you should all be playing stardew valley you you infants (laughs) so i'm curious what are your feelings about these different versions of escapism have you ever played stardew valley do you feel like i I probably would be playing it now if i hadn't already played so much of it i love stardew valley Mm -hmm. i think it's great Okay. Um, so you don't buy that there should be any sort of tension between the playing of these two games? Uh, they are just different things for for different purposes, different times? I tend to think, and this goes kind of right back to my Star Trek-loving teenage days, that it, it really isn't necessary to uh, kind of put people into camps um, in mm-hmm. terms of pop culture. I mean, obviously, everyone loved Star Wars versus Star Trek. I always liked Star Wars. I didn't dislike it. It's harder to like it now with the shit that they've put out. But, you know, mm-hmm. I, I never mm-hmm. disliked Star Wars. It wasn't a major part of my worldview in the same way. But I never th- kind of looked down on it and felt like I should have a, a superior attitude about it. But uh, So I kind of feel similarly about Stardew Valley and Animal Crossing. I think that... Animal Crossing is one of those cultural moments that was totally unbeknownst to them. They released a game that that people needed at a time in which they needed it. And so it kind of Mm -hmm, exploded mm -hmm. beyond even a normal Animal Crossing. It is the West Wing of video games. I'll give you that. Right. Right. Perfectly placed in time. It's this very Mm -hmm. cutesy, 
beautiful world that you could entirely control where nothing bad happens unless you want it to and even if there's really nothing bad can happen and you can it's got a creative element i've certainly found myself digging into the island creation aspect which is much deeper in this version of the game than previously because mm-hmm. you can terraform your island to decide where the mountains and rivers etc go which you couldn't before and so People are making things and they're sharing what they're making with other people because really this is the first Animal Crossing game that has Mm -hmm. come out at the height of social media. Like everyone has so many options, particularly sharing little videos, which is not a thing that was easy to do with the last Animal Crossing game. So suddenly you can be incredibly creative in the game and share it with other people. And this is a time when people need you know, those little doses of human creativity and to feel like they have control, I think, over their world. I think Animal Crossing provides that. Mm-hmm. Do you have a sense of why? It, so so is it maybe fair to say that Animal Crossing is more accessible than something like potentially Minecraft or Stardew Valley in terms of those games requiring maybe more... I don't know that they, that that there's something about it that makes it feel more um, open to people uh, in this particular moment. Feels even like is it just that it's sort of a little even more cartoony than those other kinds of games, or um, that it just happens to be on the right platforms at this mm-hmm. particular point in time? Or like, why do you feel like there's? And also, I'm curious. Do you think this is going to be like? a sort of a moment that passes where you know everybody eventually gets bored of of animal crossing and do you have a do you, do you feel like do you have a sense of how like how how what the what the legs are actually for a game like animal crossing like is this something that people can really pile hundreds of hours into do you feel <laughs> like it's something where everybody piles like I, I know, I know. I, like, I am asking these questions somewhat knowing the answers to them, but uh, do you, you know what I'm saying? I have already piled hundreds of hours into Animal Crossing, so the answer to that one is mm-hmm. a definite yes. Um, people play Animal Crossing games for years, and partly the reason for that is it has a very smart structure. So Stardew Valley has the kind of day structure where mm-hmm. you have a certain amount of actions you can perform in a day, effectively, so you have to keep coming back and day by day to kind of improve your farm and there's Mm -hmm. very similar kind of time gating elements in animal crossing and in addition you have seasonal events so the season changes and certain things only happen during particular times of year so the cherry blossoms only fall during the spring um you only get Mm -hmm. uh, snowflake pieces during the winter and there are different craftable items that you can only make with cherry blossom petals and Mm -hmm. snowflake pieces and maple leaves and things like this. So what you have is a constant drive to re-enter the game, to see what's new, to do the next day's thing. And so it's very well designed to keep people playing for a long time. Do you worry about that? kind of being a pretty obvious model for addiction and sort of hoarding um, that the that because there's that feeling of artificial control that is so sweet you know like this is this is the, of course the dark side of escapism and I'm curious if you feel like you see 
awareness of that within the the various gaming communities like Animal Crossing that you take part in or um, if you feel like you know people are hitting the sauce pretty hard right yeah, now they are. because they're not super worried about the consequences I, I think right now there's sort of a, a an informal social contract that has developed that says we will not give each other shit about how much time we spend playing video games or watching tv or doing whatever it is we do to get through this i feel like one of the healthy things mm-hmm. that has come out of this is that pretty much everyone there's been two narratives i've seen out there one is it's time to be your best self, rise to the challenge, do the work, keep up your routines, mm-hmm. exercise every day, you know? Like, and the other one is, shut the fuck up. Like, we're going through something <laughs> unprecedented. It sucks for everybody. If you need to play Animal Crossing literally all day to get through the fact that you're furloughed from your job and, you know, then then freaking go crazy. We don't, we're not going to hold you uh, to be a bad person for that. And so I think that generally that second narrative of sort of one, at least in my circles, no one is judging anyone for their consumption mm-hmm. of whatever it is that they're consuming. I think that's pretty good. Um, but yes, you're right. Of course, they're trying. One of the nice things is this is a Nintendo game, right? Nintendo has not mm-hmm. hyper-monetized their game. So right now, there's been a lot of free content mm-hmm. updates, but you pay the entry price, you get the full game with Animal Crossing. There's no in-game that cosmetics. Nice. There's nothing, no microtransactions of any kind whatsoever. No there's no you can't pay them any extra money at all there's just no way and that might change in the i would pay for an expansion right but i don't think they're going to do microtransactions so there's none of the kind of oh i'll just buy another pack of tokens or something or try and get a new piece of furniture or something like that Uh on the other hand right sure it's encouraging you to log in every day it is limiting what you can do i mean i get to a point where i'm like i literally can't do anything like I, I, I've done, I've got, I found my fossils. I've shaken my trees, you know. I've, I've watered my plants. I've been to uh-huh. see the art dealer who's visiting. That's all I can do today. <laughs> like until tomorrow, uh-huh. I can't play anymore. So uh-huh. there are, it's, it's a more limited potential addiction than many. <laughs> uh huh. So all, all the relentless capitalism is just located within the game related to. <laughs> something involving bells as i understand yes, it right you have to repay the loan okay. on your house to get a bigger house but you know every mm-hmm. game has gating of features until you get to a different point and this one just happens to be set out as i think you asked kind of what the um why it seems to be more accessible to many people than something like a minecraft or a stardew valley and i do think mm-hmm. that Firstly, it's a console game, first and foremost, designed for consoles. And I still think there's something different about designing for a console than a PC. And PC gaming still Mm -hmm. has that hurdle for many people. Obviously, Stardew Valley and Minecraft are on every console imaginable now. But they came from and were designed on PCs. And I still think that shows a bit. But also, Mm -hmm. Animal Crossing is set in a heavily cartoon, idealized version of the real world. Right, it is. Mm-hmm. It is about building houses and collecting fruit and picking up shells on the beach, and it is very closely linked to things that everybody already has experience with. And I think that Minecraft mm-hmm. is not to the same extent, and even Stardew Valley, not everyone has lived on a farm. Whereas in Animal Crossing, you can make your town into a cityscape if you want. It can be a remote island. It can be. A little village, whatever 
kind of world is comfortable for you, you can make it. Mm-hmm. It can be Hogwarts, apparently. Oh, I have. Um, I am very proud. I think I have built oh, yeah. the most complete recreation of the Wizarding World in Animal Crossing ever made. Like it is quite a thing. better than the one that I saw in the like BuzzFeed article the other day that had like pictures of of Hogsmeade and all the things. That wasn't you. I, was I it? need to see that because I haven't seen that specific article because I need to compare. But I do have Hogwarts Castle and its grounds, including Hagrid's hut, the Quidditch pitch, Forbidden Forest, Professor Sprout's <laughs> greenhouse. I've got the whole of Hogsmeade, including Zonko's joke shop. Glad Rags Wizarding Wear, Madam Puttyfoot's Tea Shop, Three Broomsticks Maybe pub. it was you. Maybe I just saw a thing of... Did you release a bunch of pictures of your village uh, I did, but I didn't know that it had been picked up media? by BuzzFeed. I don't think it can possibly have been picked up by BuzzFeed, and I didn't I don't hear know about if it. Was, it. I, I don't know. Maybe I'm conflating something here, but I feel like I did... I, I saw something that was pictures of everything you're describing, which means that either either you have an evil twin out there who is also creating. It might have been exact, on my Facebook. Which is quite possible, right? Law of large numbers suggests there are a variety of Hogsmeads in, in the Animal Crossing world at this oh, point. Oh, yeah. But, and um, I've been stealing a lot of ideas of how to do things from other people who have made okay. things. So it's all kind of very community-based. But I do think I've taken sure. it to an extreme where... Like when you go th- to the back of the Leaky Cauldron in London and through the magic wall into Diagon Alley, there is the heart mm-hmm. thrills. I really am very proud of it. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. So the heart thrills, but let me ask you this. Do you feel like with this kind of escapist uh, style activity, do you think you get some sort of catharsis or like, is there a, you know, like a psychological payoff that isn't kind of illusory chasing the dragon experience that maybe we all get with video games a little bit? You know, like, I guess my point is, do we need to combine this medicine with the medicine of something that is more voidy for the sake of wrestling with our demons more rather than just sort of putting them in a box while we play in 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 fantasy land what do you think do you feel like you get any catharsis at all from animal crossing so let's get philosophical a bit what what do we mean by catharsis in this context yeah well yeah yeah, so (laughs) no i tell a story about this this is this is a funny joke for me because there was a bit amongst my my shakespeare on the lawn friends back in college about a particular professor who taught a particular lecture about dracula Okay, and this was known as the catharsis lecture, where he spent the whole lecture trying to explain what it was about, what what catharsis is and how you derive it from the reading of Dracula. And it was just a reoccurring phrase of something like, well, it's a kind of venting or a purging of of emotional venting or something like that. So that's that's what I think of when I think of give me a definition of catharsis. Um, What do you come what comes to mind for you? uh, I, I seem to recall that it's it's a phrase from Aristotle's poetics, right? I think that that's right about when he's writing about um, Greek theatre, tragedy, essentially, and he's mm-hmm. giving his mm-hmm. view on how it works, including the best structure, etc., for how tragedy should be set up. And one of the things that I remember being told when I was an undergraduate studying theatre, which kind of blew my mind mm-hmm. a bit, but is true, I think, is to remember that he was basically being a theatre critic then, and he was coming up Uh with a set of aesthetic criteria that he thought pertained, but they weren't like a set of rules. They're often considered a set of rules for how a Greek tragedy had to be constructed, 
but they weren't. They were right. his opinion about what made a good tragedy, and at least some of the ones that we still have didn't conform to his mm-hmm. rules. So it's clear that there were popular tragedies, even Greek time, that didn't fulfill his definition. So I think it's a first important thing to kind of remember. This is an evaluative mm-hmm. term proposed by a thinker in order to try and understand some aspect of how artwork affects us. And we don't have to accept the term, right? We don't have to accept the idea. So there's a lot of ideas in aesthetics, mm-hmm. which is an area of a th- philosophy that I, I love. I used to help teach a class at Harvard about aesthetics, and I love the philosophy of art. I think it's fascinating and underappreciated in philosophical circles. But there's a lot of ideas about how art works, which don't always survive a lot of scrutiny. So one of them is Mm -hmm. willing suspension of disbelief, right? That's a term that has kind of entered the popular lexicon. People think, oh, yes, when I'm watching a movie, I'm getting into it because mm-hmm. I'm I'm suspending my disbelief and for a moment I kind of believe that it's happening and then I don't. And then you think about it and it's like, no, you don't. You don't actually believe at any point that the stuff happening in Spider-Man, you know, Enter the Spider-Verse is actually mm-hmm. happening. Because if you did, you'd act entirely differently. You don't watch Macbeth and you at any point think that people are actually being murdered in front of you. Otherwise, you would... <laughs> Do something about it, presumably. So there's no suspension of disbelief, at least entirely. So that and catharsis might be a term like that, and that we need to kind of problematize it and think about what it means. On the other hand, is there uh-huh. a purging of emotions? I don't know. I, I don't know whether I would use that term. I think there's a kind of soothing quality to it. There is a sense of being in control of an environment, which is, I think, psychologically Mm -hmm. valuable at a time when we're being reminded of our profound lack of control over the natural world. Something Mm -hmm. for moderns, which is very difficult to deal with, is when nature impinges upon us and we are reminded that we are small creatures with very limited power. Mm -hmm. And that's natural disasters and pandemics and things like that where we're like, oh, shit. We are not masters of all we survey. We can't overcome every problem with a technological solution. We are small beings and we are put at the hands of the vicissitudes of fate. And I think that a lot of people are feeling that and they're looking for a way to be in control. And Animal Crossing offers that. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I think those are all very good points. I, I well, I would push a little bit back on the suspension of disbelief. I think that maybe is a little bit too literal a way of thinking what's going on there. Where I think you know we can meaningfully distinguish between pieces of art that earn a kind of you know willing to let slide on something that seems less plausible because it's being well used and written well versus something that makes you know like breaks us out of it and makes us think you know well this is just dumb overall um my classic example being you know fury road is the kind of thing where you suspend disbelief about how absurd the situation is yes (laughs) because it's just so well done and so cool um but I do agree with you that catharsis as a concept needs to be broader than what I think we sometimes have in mind, which is the there has to be a big conflict between good and evil, and we have to be afraid that you know evil is going to triumph, and then maybe good does triumph, or if it doesn't, it doesn't in a way that is still allows for us to to vent our spleens a little bit. Um, and I agree with you that I think there can be different modes of catharsis, and one of them could be this kind of 
of letting the stress and anxiety seep away rather than having to go through that big crash of symbols before you let it let it seep away and that, that you could have that kind of catharsis in um these more escapist kinds of activities now i wonder if there's a sense in which those different kinds of catharsis are all valuable and don't necessarily serve as good stand-ins for one another and so it might still be true that people should experience a broad range of kinds of of ways of engaging with um their emotional conflict um so that it would be still true that like just doing nothing but animal crossing might might eventually cause some damage or uh, decrease flourishing in a way that mixing that with a little bit of um, Heart of Darkness would be helpful. Oh, yeah. And I, I actually think I think you're totally right about that. And I, I think that that's, that sort of is happening in a sense that people... Mm-hmm. I think that one of the interesting things... I don't want to just make the whole thing a discussion of Animal Crossing. It's effectively become that. But... Um, but there's something I'm fully okay with it. There's something interesting in how people are acting in this fictional world in that you see people creating these absolutely gorgeous islands which are filled with star lamps and crescent moon chairs and it's like this fantasy world. They're beautiful and I visit a lot of islands because I do a lot of trading to get all the various strange objects I need to recreate Hogwarts in its entirety. And so I see these gorgeous islands, but very often the the characters, their avatars, when you land on the island and you come out of the airport and you greet them, they'll be wearing like a beautiful flowing dress and a star-shaped little bag and a, a mm-hmm. mask, like a COVID mask. Mm-hmm. And it's like, wait a minute, why would you bring that into your fantasy world if it's supposed to be escapist? But people are, people know that it's not real, right? Mm-hmm. And so the worlds mm-hmm. kind of collide in a way. And in fact, there have been some really interesting examples of activism within Animal Crossing of kind of political expression. So people have created quarantine islands and they've been doing social distancing with Animal Crossing and they've been kind of exploring the actual situation we're living through using the game as a creative tool for exploring that. So I think the boundaries between what is escapism and what is kind of confronting the dark voidness of our experience are blurrier Uh than they might initially seem. I absolutely agree with that. And I, I'm, as a member, as a leader of an ironic cult, I think that it's important to blur the lines between those two things as much as possible. Um, so I was, you know, curious, for example, if anybody has done, you know, Riot Island or something, or if we will, we will see that inevitably come out of uh, the current um, confluence of culture and, and media. Um, yeah. I personally would probably go for a Hannibal Lecter themed island. I think be the way that I would go with that. That would and be then, great. Like, there are some wonderful slowly, Stephen slowly King islands. There are horror islands. Okay. There are um, uh-huh. there, there's a Mad Max Fury Road island that I visited once that was absolutely oh. brilliant. There's some really good post apocalyptic gear. Like you can, you can. There are like there's not That's just pretty, pretty cool. things in the game. You can get f- flaming oil drums and barbed wire fences and things like that so you can really go dark if you want to you could do police state island if you wanted to you could you could if you wanted to be really Uh dark and if you wanted to use it as a political tool for exploring the current Mm -hmm. uh the one of the other crises that we're living through which is you know the 
incredible over-policing of communities of color and police brutality, which is something very... I mean, I moved mm-hmm. to St. Louis just a month before Mike Brown was killed and then mm-hmm. lived through and did a lot of activism through um, the Ferguson uprising. Um, so seeing this happen in Minneapolis and seeing so many similar scenes again is kind of bringing a lot of that back. And it, I do think that people will start to use these fictional platforms to explore what's happening in the rest of the world because ultimately I, I, I think that when we think about virtual worlds like an Animal Crossing world or Minecraft or something like that, the, mm-hmm. the temptation is, and it's a very useful analytical frame, I use it a lot myself, is to think of it as sort of layers of reality where you have real life mm-hmm. and then you kind of pop into Animal Crossing world and that's a virtual world or you you pop back out to real life and you pop into Minecraft for a bit and these are kind of sub layers of reality that you kind of dip into and out of. And I, I find that a very useful way of thinking, but I also think there's the other way of thinking that I have to remind myself, which is it's all reality, right? It's all just mm-hmm. one layer of human beings trying to make sense of all this shit we're going through. And some of the ways we make sense is we write a scholarly book about police brutality. And some of the ways we make sense is we create within a video game a replica representation of what a community is experiencing and that those are not mm-hmm. actually different from reality those are all elements of the human reality and they they are respectable potentially ways of responding to the challenges of being human i think that's a really really great point and now i'm thinking about all of the social justice science fiction that i want to see play out in animal crossing to be <laughs> honest i i want to do a, a animals who walk away from omalas crossover i feel like if i was going to make an island and it would just be like this really beautiful gorgeous island except in the basement of like one of the houses there's one sad little animal that has to be tortured so that everyone else can exist in this perfect beautiful island I, and then people can come and look at the uh, the one who who sits there i want to visit all these islands you're going to like i really do. i know i never have any time to make any of these things but in my mind they exist and that's important that's good enough right that's a great idea um, i did see one on probably a buzzfeed article which was a um recreation of many of the the places and scenarios in the good place so they had oh, the trolley lovely. problem wonderful um uh-huh. and all these sorts of di- the characters and um the situations <laughs> in that show and that that amused me as a philosopher okay so we've eaten up our entire time <laughs> talking about various forms of animal which, which like i'm totally okay with I, i'm curious on the other side of the spectrum when you go into your like heart of darkness place what are pieces of art that you really feel like do it for you for like going into that 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 kind of place and then um you know feeling connected to the pathos and and then coming out of it in a in a more uh, fulfilled kind of way venturing into the void well yeah. I, I it's it may not seem like this to your listeners because of what we've discussed today but i'm actually pretty connected to the darkness of life my husband is often reminding me that i don't need to dwell on <laughs> on the uh, i i i like being sad in the sense that i'm not afraid of so-called negative emotions and i i love watching things that really take me deep and make me feel the aches and pains of 
of human life. And so for me, what are those things? Well, some of it is just dark, challenging science fiction. I recently read the books on which the Annihilation movie was based. Mm, and particularly mm -hmm. the first one, I kind of had, um, I think the genre or the subgenre is called the new weird. And I, I dug uh -huh. into that a lot. I read a lot of books. I played the, the video game Control, which is excellent. And there's something very hmm. disturbing and unsettling about that whole genre that I really appreciate, like being forced to kind of reconsider the nature of reality. Um, and sometimes it's just like, uh, reveling in the potential fucked upness of the world. Like, I love the Mad Max movies, not just the new one, which I adore, but the old mm -hmm. ones as well. Post Apocalyptica is one of my favorite subgenres. I love it. Mm -hmm. I even like the terrible TV shows like Jericho and stuff like that, which, which are. I liked Jericho too. Yeah. I was totally on board with that one. No one else liked no. it except us. Nope. Sadly. Nope, but I liked it. I know. Right. I love I love the road. I love the stand. I, I love the Fallout video games. This idea, because I think that post-apocalyptic works challenge us to ask what is really human, right? What what are humans really like when the chips are down? Mm -hmm. And some people say we are shit, we are terrible, we'll kill and eat each other, um, and we'll do mm -hmm. anything to survive. Mm -hmm. And some say, no, there's a nobility there. And some say, oh, it's a bit of both, which I think is probably true, right? Um, so right. I'm super excited for The Last of Us Part 2, which is coming out very soon. Oh, yeah. That's a brilliant uh -huh. post-apocalyptic video game that really digs into the nasty side of humanity. And I think that's an important part of the sort of humanism that I try and promote in my work, which is often people assume that humanists think that humans are fundamentally good. And sometimes my members tell mm -hmm. me that, like human beings are fundamentally good. And mm -hmm. I'm like, no, no, <laughs> we are not fundamentally good. <laughs> Made good by habit, if we're lucky. Right, right. That's a good way of putting it. Like, I like to say we're not fundamentally good. We're not fundamentally evil. We're fundamentally animals. Like, the analog for human mm -hmm. beings is like lions, right? And we are more mm -hmm. close to that than any ideal moral being of any sort. And so we need to really appreciate the potential darkness of humanity and the terrible ways that we can act towards each other. And there are art forms that really dig into that. And I like them. I, I have a, I have a dark side. Mm -hmm. At least I like to think so. Yeah. <laughs> it's the Tim Minchin song, dark side. It's made me think of that. I love um, yeah, no, I'm, I'm very on board with you on the post-apocalyptic stuff. I recently read parable of the talents based on a suggestion from a friend and listener, uh, which is Octavia Butler's take on the semi collapse of America. That is incredibly disturbing and full of sexual assault. And um, I'm often like to um, try to recommend to people uh, this war of mine, um, which is like a, it's a war simulator where you are civilians living in a, in a war zone essentially. And you have to like scrounge and, um, you know, steal from other people sometimes and do morally questionable things. And, uh, it's, it's a really great game for, for coping with, uh, trying to think about how humanity actually acts in crisis. I have written down both of those because I haven't read either of them.
Yeah, I want to do a comparison sometime here on Philosophers in Space eventually of Parable of the Talents versus Turner Diaries, which is the the classic white supremacist take on what the um, the collapse would look like and how what it should look like. Um, and I'm, I'm curious to see how those two things look from different angles, um, because the Octavia Butler is very much a lot of, you know, Christian white people abusing non-Christian, non-white people. Mm-hmm. Um, so sadly, we are getting short on time here, and I need to run you through the enlightening round. Um, Yay! Do you? Any, yeah. So I think let's just get straight to that because I think you, your your points about everything have been have been so excellent. I think we'll just leave it there. Um, so uh, for folks who are not familiar, I'm going to give you a list of things. You're going to tell me if those things are real or not real. Um, unfortunately for you. I have conf- uh, conferred with our scientists recently, and we've made a couple of slight tweaks. So you're going to be the first in line for a few new ones. Um, so if you had your answers prepared ahead of time, I apologize. No, I didn't have uh, my answers. I wanted to go into this. Good. So I just say they're real or not real. That's all I say. Real, real or not real. Those are your only options. All right. Are you ready? Yep. Okay. Let me just check. First of all, is anything real? Yeah. Okay. Let's find out what's real. Is the external world real? Yeah. Colors? Yeah. (laughs) Phenomenal consciousness? Yeah, why not? Okay. Free will? It's a difficult one. I mean, if I only have to say yes or no, I'll I'll go with yes. Real or not real? Real. Okay, real. Okay. Selves or persons? Real. Okay. Genders. Uh, real with major caveats. Yeah, yeah. Uh huh. Race, races. Not real. Species. This is not fair for a pragmatist. Um, it's real. No, this is not fair for anyone. <laughs> okay. Morality. Real. That's easy. Rights? Yeah, real-ish. Okay. Knowledge? Definitely maybe real. (laughs) God or God? No, not real. Goodness, no. That's the easiest one. Okay. Society? Real. Money? I'm going to be consistent with my other answers. I have to say real, but I kind of want to say not real. Okay. Numbers? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, real. Why not? Fictional characters. Let's just say fictional characters are not real. I have to answer not real to something. Okay. Uh, Holes as in a hole in the ground. Oh, those are real. Chairs? Yes, definitely. Oh, Sandwiches? Definitely real. It's the realest it can get. <laughs> Science? <laughs> uh, real. Natural laws? Real. <laughs> Beauty? Real. Causality? Yeah, real. Causality's real. I don't know why I thought about that one. Okay. And finally, time. 
Yeah, I'll say time is real. I want to really explore these now. That's not fair. <laughs> Ending a podcast like that is not fair, particularly when you're essentially a sort of neo-pragmatist and you're like, well, it depends on how we use all these concepts. <laughs> like, oh, man, that... That's a great way to end a show because now I'm going to think about it all day. It's torture. It's the most beautifully exquisite kind of torture. Yeah, it's, there is, that's it seems brilliant. Like. You've come up with a way of really hurting philosophers. I mean, that's pretty much what I'm here for. We is, deserve it. Yeah. Let's be honest. Yeah, it's sort of a sadomasochistic thing because I do it to myself. So, <laughs> but yeah, I'm glad you enjoyed it. I'm glad you see the the dark beauty of our little process here. Um, so, James, thank you so much for coming on and chatting. Could you let folks know one more time where they can find your goodness? You can find the Ethical Society of St. Louis at ethicalstl.org. Right now, all our meetings are online and all of them are open to everybody. You don't have to be a member of our community to come to our Sunday morning meetings or any of our educational programs. We host philosophical discussions and book groups and everything, meditation groups, even all on Zoom, and you can come. So you can find a calendar there for information about that. And if you want to listen to the podcast, you just go to ethicsandchill.org or search for Ethics and Chill at any podcast aggregator and you should find it. Great. Well, thank you so much. And I highly recommend the show. And I will catch you, I imagine, back on the Twitterverse. Thank you so much. I enjoyed it. As always, I'd like to thank our listeners and patrons who make the show possible. I'd like to thank some new patrons and some returning patrons. Thanks to Osmium, Lost Remote Control, Theo, Fweth, Full Name, Stephen McKendry, and we're still getting paid, so making sure you are too. That's a really touching sentiment. Uh, thanks also to Jonathan Yance Jones for increasing his pledge. Um, and as always, I must thank our top patrons at the $20 tier level. Jude Law's Canadian accent in Existence makes my pussy throb. Not everyone, not, oh, sorry, now everyone knows about Camp Quest. Check out blacknonbelievers.com. Strong suggestion. Uh, Chad T. Brenda Goodman and Jesse Urbinowitz. And at our top tier evil cult leader levels, we've got our longtime friend Dave Maslich. And our mystery patron has revealed himself to be the venerable Richard Milhouse Nixon. So I imagine he's riddled with phlebitis and we're happy to have him here. Uh, thank you all so much for supporting the show. If you'd like to support the show, please leave us a five-star rating and a review on whatever podcast app you use, though especially iTunes helps a lot. Uh, follow us on Twitter at ETVPod. And if you notice a small void growing within you, consider supporting us financially at patreon.com slash embrace the void. Just $4 a month gets you our bonus book club content, which I promise is returning now that I've finished moving. Um, and most importantly, in these trying times especially, remember, you are the void, and the void is you. Oh.